90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. You know, we're getting later into the year and that means ice is always a possibility. You know, we do a Can't lot wait. with... Uh, <laughs> a lot with ice hazards when it comes to some of our customers and we're starting to see those maps light up you know all summer we wonder if the scripts are broken if the servers are running <laughs> the time that files get changed and maps get updated you know that changes but uh, we never see anything but blank maps on the ice and snow for mm -hmm. all summer yep yep i'm uh you know the longer it can hold off, the better, because I planted pansies a couple weeks ago, and I'd like to see them for a little while, and I feel really old <laughs> saying that right now. <laughs> ah, yep. Oh, planting anything in Oklahoma is dangerous. Yeah, it, that's for sure. It gets blown away, frozen, or baked. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's like a two-week window in fall and spring where everything's beautiful, and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Though, you know, I mean, this week the trees are, yeah, the trees around here aren't even that pretty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's like four trees that are red and that's it. Everything else is already gone brown. Everything else is like <laughs> crunchy. Yeah. It's pretty terrible. We just need one more windstorm to rip everything off. So mm -hmm. not my shingles, hopefully, but definitely the leaves. <laughs> right. We also, we've got all these hazards and, you know, wind and dry vegetation brings you fire hazard. It's really a pretty perilous time of year, uh, especially out here in the plains which is why this week we're really excited to be talking to Captain Jeff Grass about emergency preparedness. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good evening. <laughs> so, Jeff, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, well, my name is Jeff Grass. I'm a fire captain uh, with the Asylum Springs, Arkansas Fire Department. I've been with the fire department for about seven years. My job as a captain, I'm the crew leader for my station, uh, for my shift. And so my job goes from anything from scheduling to coordinating trainings. Uh, when it comes to running emergency calls like car wrecks or rescues or fires, I go in and uh, with my guys, with my crew, and ensure that everybody's operating safely, everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, I'm kind of the... Uh, Oh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of set the tone for, for what goes on in each of these situations, each of these emergencies. And so uh, hopefully we, we execute the things that we, we did in training. We're able to execute it in order to uh, create an effective situation and, or, or mitigate the, the hazard. So I've definitely got some questions about how you train for things that are going to be totally different every time you walk up to a situation. But <laughs> sure, we'll get sure, there. sure. Uh, so before we do get there, though, how did you how did you get into this line of work? Is this something you always wanted to do or did you want to do something else and found this? Or yeah, how did you? Gosh, yeah. All right. So um, so actually, when I started pretty much, it's probably been since middle school. My goal was to be a football coach and a history teacher. <laughs> my father was a, a football coach and a history teacher. My passion was football. I didn't want to do anything else besides those things, right? Um, I got into college and stumbled my way into working uh, at a children's shelter. So I worked in emergency care for, for children who were in the uh, 
for lack of a better term, for they were basically in the foster care system, kids that have been uh, placed with with an emergency care because of abuse or neglect or or something along those lines. And so I found myself doing that line of work, and I did that for about seven years while uh, going in and out of college and and finding other distractions throughout life. So I got to the point where I was about one class away from finishing my degree, ready to move on to, to teaching and coaching. And I thought, I am so burnt out on raising other people's kids, on dealing with all this, uh, this other stress in my life uh, from that perspective. And at that time, we were in, uh, we were living in just outside of Orlando, Florida, uh, working at a children's home. And a friend of mine from the Kansas City area, he's a fireman in uh, Independence for the Independence Fire Department. And he came down to visit us. He stayed with us, him and his family, so they could go to Disney World. We kind of gave him a place to stay for the week. And I just started talking to him about uh, what he did for a living. And for me, what drew me to uh, just firefighting, the same thing that kind of drew me to emergency children care, uh, uh, the same things that drew me to wanting to coach football, was just kind of this excitement, this adrenaline rush, not doing the same thing every day. So uh, the things that he had to go through to find himself in that position, it seemed pretty daunting to me because most fire departments require you to have your EMT license at a minimum. Sometimes you have to send yourself to fire academy depending on state. And uh, so it just seemed kind of like a big deal to me. And so it's, it had been something that crossed my mind a time or two. Uh, but I sat down with him and he talked me through it and, and it seemed like something I was ready to tackle. I was ready to get out. I was burnt out. Um, so I immediately applied for EMT school. I went through that in uh, South Florida. We changed to a different children's home. So I, I had a little bit more freedom to do some schooling. So I graduated from Palm Beach State College with an EMT license uh, about eight, seven and a half years ago and uh, applied. I knew we wanted to come back. We had family in Salem Springs. Uh, in the Northwest Arkansas area. So I, I knew I wanted to raise a family uh, over here. And at the time, my wife and I were pregnant with our second child. So I applied for the Silent Springs Fire Department. They accepted me and sent me to Fire Academy and the rest is history. I can't imagine anything more stressful. Like I'm a very high strong person. <laughs> and so like, is that the, you go to Fire Academy and I know a lot of people don't make it through that. Um, mm-hmm. So what's the thing that holds people back? You know, like, is it, is it the demeanor? Is it the actual physicality? I always think about this when I have friends that like go through, you know, the fire police Academy. You know, it's probably 40 or 50% physical and the rest of it's mental. Okay. Uh, there, there are people from all walks of life, people in all kinds of shape, uh, men and women alike who make it through or don't make it through. So, so much of that is, um, is the ability to push past when, when you're faced with adversity. It's that mental capacity to say, hey, I'm not turning back and I'm going to keep pushing forward. That was it for me. And for me, I, I drew a lot of that from playing sports. Uh, my dad was, was the high school football coach when I was growing up. My dad also retired as a colonel in the Marines. So, um, growing up, I learned a lot about uh, adversity and mental toughness and, and trying to push through a lot of things. And so that was it for me. Like I said, I, I've seen guys come and test for the fire department uh, who appear to be in top physical condition who fail our entry level test. Mm-hmm. That's not the academy. That's just the entry level test. And I've seen people who um, would be classified as obese, may look somewhat unathletic, 
push through it, test and, and finish it in the, in the allotted amount of time. And we've hired those folks because they've shown an extreme amount of uh, mental toughness and the ability to push through when they're faced with adversity. Yeah. And, you know, in an, in an emergency situation, right, no matter what it is, you've only got so long to make a decision, which is not something that, you know, a lot of the folks that we talk to, that they'll spend their whole lives studying and debating one aspect <laughs> of one thing. Yeah. And you, you can't do that because you've got something that's got very real consequences and a very definite clock ticking for you to make those decisions. And it's something that I don't think a lot of, a lot of folks are prepared for when, not if disaster actually impacts them. Uh, personally, you know, we talk a lot about all the different hazards that you could experience on the show. We talk about earthquakes, we talk about hurricanes, tornadoes, landslides, uh, but we don't necessarily spend much time talking about how you should be prepared if you find yourself in one of those situations. <laughs> right. uh, and so, so it's a pretty open-ended uh, question here, but what are some steps that the average person can take to prepare themselves to deal with a disaster when it strikes? Not Maybe not even in terms of gear, just how do they prepare mentally uh, right. for dealing with that? Yeah, there's kind of two aspects to the thing, right? There's kind of this, this, what do you do immediately? What do you do in the moment? And then how do you respond when there's sort of this calm from the, from the end of the storm, so to speak, right? Or literally and figuratively. Um, for me, and this is the same thing that, that uh, we, I train with my guys at work, we talk a lot about what's called mental mapping. So that's just, that's sitting down, that's imagining yourself in these scenarios. So we run through these scenarios and sometimes we'll talk them out amongst ourselves, but I encourage people, and, and the same thing when I teach CPR classes, is put yourself in that scenario. Because when that moment comes, your, your adrenaline is going through the roof, right? Your heart rate accelerates. When your heart rate accelerates, oxygen demand increases. When oxygen demand increases, you start losing fine motor skills. You start losing uh, that, that cognitive function uh, portion of your brain. So you, so you lose a lot of that stuff. And there's this, there's this myth that people rise to the occasion. And that's, that's completely false, right? People don't rise to the occasion. They fall to their lowest level of training or experience, and so your mind doesn't know what to do in those moments. You're, it's racing. Uh, you don't have time to sit down and think about these little things. You, you have to make a decision. And, and another thing I tell the guys is, is that the, maybe the wrong or um, less perfect decision now is better than the best decision tomorrow, right? So we have to be able to make quick decisions. So we do that by sitting, sitting down and, and, and putting ourselves through those scenarios in our minds. Okay, what am I going to do when a tornado strikes? What do I do if the power's out? Um, what am I going to do if, if someone starts to, to bring harm to my family? So on and so forth. And we do the same thing with fires. Hey, um, we pull up to a house and there's a fire and there's, you know, smoke coming out of the eaves and there's a fire coming through the front window. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do this, 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 and this. Um, and you have to put yourself in that situation. So you have something to fall back on when, when that time comes. So that's, that's number one we can do. Just everybody can do on their own. And um, something that, that my wife, for instance, has been very good at. Um, several years ago, it's probably been about five. No, it's probably been about seven years now. Um, our second child went into cardiac arrest at home. He was just a baby. And he stopped breathing his heart stopped beating and my wife uh, was just, was holding him. He was sick. He wasn't acting right. And she knew exactly what to do. And she acted quickly. Uh, she started performing CPR right away, called 911. 
but she knew what to do. She was prepared for that scenario because all throughout high school, she was a lifeguard. And when she was a lifeguard, they, her employer ensured that they were all equipped to do the right thing and act promptly and, and uh, with competence and confidence, right? So when we're competent at something, where we're very, very good at something, uh, we become more confident. And the biggest thing when people are faced with these emergencies, uh, whether it be a, a deceased relative or somebody, you know, somebody in cardiac arrest or a tornado hits or something like that, um, the biggest thing there is that people sort of panic and they, they start to lose this confidence. They don't know, oh, should I do this or should I do that? I don't want to do the wrong thing, right? And so they developed this um, competence with her and gave her confidence. So they did a lot of training. They would throw the dummy in the pool, wait, see how long they all noticed that, that it was down there and they would run through all these scenarios. And they did this on a really regular basis. So that way, when that time came in her life, this, this, the worst moment of her life that she could ever imagine, she didn't have to stop and think about it. She knew exactly what to do. Right. So going through those, those scenarios and training and, and training regularly, right? Because at the, at the fire department, you don't just train once for pulling up to a house fire and say, okay, yeah, we got it. You know, pilots right. don't train once for an emergency landing. So, so these are situations that people need to practice often, right? Absolutely. Um, and this, you know, on a more um, basic fundamental level, it's, it's running through uh, fire drill scenarios with your, with your kids or with your family members. Hey, this is going to be our rally point. We're going to meet at this tree. Uh, we're going to meet over here. So, you know, Fire practice here. Let let your kids hear those sounds, the sounds of a fire, the smoke alarm going off. Um, you know, a big thing with with kids and smoke alarms is a lot of studies show that kids have a hard time waking up to that same high pitched sound that always wakes us up. Especially, you know, you usually notice it when our smoke detector batteries are low, right? It always happens in the middle of the night across the the house. But our kids don't don't typically hear that when they're sleeping. Their sleep patterns are a lot different from ours. Um, so what they have out there right now is, is you've got some smoke detectors where you can record your voice. So your kids are way more likely to wake up to the sound of their parents' voice than they are to that high-pitched sound that we've been so conditioned to. So um, that's ideal. You know, that's, that's top of the line, top notch. But if you, can't, if you can't afford that, can't get your hands on one of those, um, just training your kids to know what that sound sounds like and tell them what to do. Um, and there's, like you said, there's a lot of scenarios to run through, you know, what if there's fire in the hallway? Okay. Let's find a way to get out of the window. Um, but the biggest thing is going to be to, to really tell your kids, Hey, don't kids kind of have this natural instinct to hide when they're scared. Right. Uh, that would be one of the worst things you could do in the event of a fire. Um, because it's our job and, and, and my, the company I work with, uh, it's a, it's on a ladder truck. It's kind of our specific job to do searches and it makes it really difficult for us um, you know, we, we try to, to be as thorough as possible, but, but if you get a kid whose um, instinct is hide under the bed, that's a much tougher find than a kid who's made an attempt to get outside or stayed in place in bed or something along those lines. So practice those drills with kids, familiarize them with that sound, but not just with fires. You can do the same thing with tornadoes, finding a safe spot in your home, making that the norm, you know, to, to practice that every time there's a tornado warning. Also, I would imagine there's some things that you could do because if if there is a fire and your company comes in and is starting to clear rooms, or if there's a tornado and you're going through trying to find somebody uh, that's buried under rubble, you're not going to look like somebody that the kid is expecting, right? You don't look human right. at all. You've got a mask on and lights, and uh, I would imagine that would also be potentially making them want to hide. 
Right. That, that potentially adds some, some extra factors in there. Um, you would hope that in that event, um, they're going to look for any sort of safe space, right? Um, the heat, the smoke, the, the fear, just whatever. Um, but that is another potential element that, that could complicate things. Sure. My kids know the fire alarm sound every time I cook. <laughs> good, good <deal. laughs> so yeah, I should probably condition them for something else besides just going, Oh, pizza. We'll call pizza. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and that, that would bring up another great point about detector placement. Yeah. Uh, some people, some people think that detectors should be placed in the kitchen when, when in fact they shouldn't, because you'll get a lot of those false positives. Um, we're looking for maybe the next room over outside of the kitchen um, definitely every bedroom, if at all possible, if not, if not, then the hallway. And then the other thing is, especially if, if cooking tends to set them off a lot, check and make sure your detector is not saturated. So over time, those sensors in them get exposed to so much smoke that they're no longer effective. Um, and then lastly on smoke detectors is that they have a 10 year lifespan, right? So even your wired detectors have a 10 year lifespan and need to be switched out once we hit that 10 years and most of the time that dates uh, on the back and it's usually the manufacturer date. I'm going to have to check that. I'm making all these notes. I love this. Uh, <laughs> I love this recording your voice thing because it's like, I think about on the 4th of July, like I live out in the country and the 4th of July is a major thing here. Right. I mean, it's like reenacting the, sure. the, you know, civil war or something. It's so loud and the kids sleep through it. And you're like, what is, yeah. you know, what is, ever going to wake these children up. So that's actually really interesting that that's a thing that has been studied and like taken care of. That's, that's really neat. Sure. So what are some of the things, uh, you know, so smoke detector would be your smoke detectors are great in the house. Uh, what are some things that folks should be keeping in their house to be prepared for a disaster? Well, um, for me, we, you know, detectors, like you mentioned, uh, carbon monoxide detectors are another big one. Uh, I, I have no shortage of fire extinguishers in and around my house. That's always a good thing to have. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and I hate to admit that, that it wasn't until about March or April when we're faced with a national pandemic that, that I started to uh, have a much better box of supplies in the event that, that something catastrophic occurred. So uh, for me, it's canned goods that, that don't go bad uh, for several years. Flashlights with, uh, with batteries stored separately. So it's better to do that, obviously, so, so the batteries don't corrode and, and mess up the flashlight for when you need it most. Uh, make sure they're batteries that have a long lifespan and, and all of that. Those are, those are big basics. Bottled water, another huge one. Or even better, if you have some sort of filter or something along those lines where you can filter bad water in the event that, uh, that you need more than just a 12-pack of, of water. And then try to be disciplined about not tapping into that emergency kit there, you know. That's something that, that people will tend to do. And then the others, the additionals, diapers, wipes, things like that that you may need if you've got younger ones. Definitely. And I think that was a, a really good point about the flashlight because I don't know how many times, you know, folks – reach for the, the flashlight that's on the nightstand that they haven't turned on in a while right. and, it, and it's dead. Uh, there's also yeah. some really great rechargeable ones that stay plugged into the wall. Uh, but just like yeah. with a, a smoke detector or anything else, you, know, you want to want to throw those away every few years and replace them. It's only a few bucks, sure. right? Sure. Okay. So I think that's, 
those are my questions about the home. Shannon, did you have any? Well, I, I have a question just in, even talking about homes. So we've talked to, um, you know, we talked to the meteorologist in charge from Tulsa in an interview recently. And I asked him like, where is the most challenging place to forecast? And he was talking about being this area, right? Because of the storms we get, because of the placement of the Rockies and because of the New Madrid fault. So like we could even get big earthquakes. Is that something you guys talk about? Like very specifically, you know, within the fire departments, you've got to think about the different emergencies that can happen there. It seems like this area has a bunch of different things to be, that you have to be prepared for. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so yes, a lot of people think that, you know, that the only thing we do is fight fires or sit in a recliner, right? And, and really those <laughs> things couldn't be uh, couldn't be further from the truth. So the sure, firefighting. Too, right? is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and those are fun, let me tell you. But uh, but but you know, we we do a lot more than that. If and and the way I like to describe it to people is is look, if you have an emergency that's not a fire, and doesn't require a police officer to say chase it down or or, or shoot it or whatever, um, who are you calling? Who do you think shows up? It's the fire department, right? So we do we do swift water rescues. Um, we do confined space rescues. We do trench collapse rescues. Um, you name it, we do it. Um, guys, you know, people get in the car wrecks and, and we have to cut them out uh, to gain access. A lot of times we have large tools. People think of them, uh, I've always been familiar, I'm sure, with the term uh, jaws of life used to cut people out of cars. So there's, there's kind of all these things. We're, we're an all hazard uh, career, you know, so we do more than just that. Um, so yeah, sure, we, we've had a fair amount of calls where, We've had to deal with a tree that's fallen on a house and we're trying to extricate a family member from the bedroom. Uh, there's been a few unfortunate events with, with those, especially around here. Like you mentioned, it's, this is the hot spot. Um, we, we do have, uh, I think what, what, what John may be familiar with the, what we call the JBU bubble, the John Brown university bubble <laughs> that uh, the tornadoes uh, mysteriously disappear once they, once they hit our town. But um, well, when they occasionally do hit, uh, there are those things and, and good ways that you can kind of help protect your home from stuff like that and yourselves. Uh, be aware of dead trees, dead limbs, um, trees that are overhanging your house. Uh, and the same thing with, you know, uh, with wildfires, people allow too much uh, leaf litter and things to sit close to their house or, or dead bushes that can really, cause some issues there. But yeah, we try to plan for, for everything from tornadoes to floods to, to it all. And, and on the flooding portion of things, people don't realize how often the, that cars get swept off the road. With just a little bit of running water, cars get swept off the road. Um, and, and I've pulled too many people uh, out of some pretty, pretty fast waters because they thought they could traverse uh, just a little bit of water. It's not even like the big pickup trucks either. It's like, I'm into my no. Hyundai Sonata and I'm going to, I'm going to make this. And you're like, no. Oh yeah. We, we had a smart car uh, oh, uh, pulled no. off the road not too long ago. And that was, that was a funny one. Uh, but that was I'm barely raining. I'm guessing. Pick up a smart car and throw it. Exactly. So. exactly. <laughs> they were thinking. Uh, just let me get this out of here. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's hilarious. That's, uh, so this just happened just yesterday. My daughter and I were coming home and, uh, you know, the big ladder truck passed us and she's like, there's a fire. And I was like, well, maybe not, <laughs> you yeah. know? And I think that, yeah, people don't really realize the breadth of experience that a firefighter has to have versus you sure. know just an emt or just an emt but you know <laughs> so. you know I've, we've gotten real i've gotten really very very good at picking people up off the floor 
<laughs> that is that is such a common call that we get, uh, which oh, which wow. most of the time I'm more than happy to 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 do that. It's usually your elderly folks mm-hmm. uh, that just have a tough time, and and sometimes pride gets the best of them, and and they wait. Uh, it's the worst. You'll hear you'll we'll have people that that have waited full 24 hours before oh, calling. Goodness. Oh my gosh! Please don't do that. So, um, but something I never thought I'd just be super great at, and that's that's finding uh, very special ways to pick people up off the floor. <laughs> How many cats have you had to get out of trees? (laughs) You know, I've gotten zero cats out of trees. I did get a cat out of an engine block. Um, (laughs) Now it's our family pet. So, okay. He was alive. (laughs) Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, You know what the the saying in the fire department is, is you never see a dead cat in a tree. So uh, eventually they come down. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's pretty great. Um, being out in the country, we've had to call the fire department so many times for the random grass fires last week. Um, uh, because it was super windy, the power poles had gotten knocked around and it caused this just smoking fire, you know, and here come the guys. And it's like, Hey, again, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's always interesting to me because we live sort of within, in the middle of a bunch of different cities. So it, it's always someone else that comes like it's sometimes it's this city sometimes it's that city um but yeah you guys have a lot of equipment too it's always a different type of truck and all that jazz but you said you were in charge of a ladder truck so yeah yeah so we've you know your basic firefighting trucks or you've got ladders and engines and traditionally they've got different functions whereas the engine is more on the suppression side they pull the hoses spray the water do all that stuff the ladder company does more of the rescue. We like to break stuff. Um, So we, we like to bust the doors down and, and, and break windows and cut holes in roofs and, and search through the house and all that stuff. So we're um, we try to embrace that culture uh, with, with my company on my shift and, and we're just, we're big brutes. (laughs) Awesome. That's what you want. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, I think love it or hate it. uh, One of the shows that really array, raise the awareness quite a bit of all of the roles that firefighters have to play uh, was that uh, show emergency from the 1970s yeah, for sure because i that, think that that's was... that's still the 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 top the the upper echelon among uh the fire service for 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 shows that are out there you know you've got the 911 right now you, you had a few other ones that just are way overplay it or, or over dramatize it and i think i think emergency is still in high favor uh among everyone who works in emergency services. I think you're right. That, that did a lot to expose uh, kind of what we do and, and what life is like. So as a, as a firefighter, not only is being prepared for these, but being able to communicate with the people that you protect uh, is also a really important part of this. So what do you do to try to reach out to community members and what kind of feedback do you get from them that helps you all? That's a great point. Um, Every interaction, I try to make a some sort of public education interaction. Um, you know, one of the things that that we do that uh, is, is becoming a big trend in the fire service, but it really just depends regionally where you're at. But we we are all cross trained that that we we run our own ambulances as well as our own fire trucks. So um, some places it's private; you'll have a private ambulance service and a public fire department, or you'll have the city will have a still a separated kind of like you'll have police, you'll have fire, you'll have EMS. Um, here, the most of this region is, is an integrated fire and EMS 
department. So I'm also a paramedic and I spent my time on, on an ambulance for several years before kind of uh, working my way up to where I'm pretty much always on a fire truck. But even, even then, now we'll go and, and we'll assist the EMS companies on kind of your larger priority calls, your heart attacks, your cardiac arrests, major bleeding, things like that. And um, so we'll go on these calls and, and people won't realize that we'll go, fire department, we call for, for EMS, we call for an ambulance, you know? Um, and so I like to use those opportunities to explain just what I've explained to you guys, you know, kind of what, uh, what we all do uh, and all the things that we do, but you know, little things like uh, smoke detectors, you know, if we're picking somebody up off the floor, we'll talk, Hey, you know, um, that smoke detector looks kind of old. Do you mind if I take a look at it? Uh, another big program we do here is if there's a, a house fire in a neighborhood, we, we do what's called a smoke detector saturation program. And that's, that's also pretty common in the, in the United States is uh, so we'll go around about a week later and we'll start knocking on doors and saying, Hey, do you guys care if we check your smoke detectors? And we try to install smoke detectors that, that are provided through grants uh, throughout all these houses and, and just make sure that everybody's got what they need. But as, as many opportunities as possible, we, we look for, for public education. Then you've got your other things. We run a, a summer kids camp uh, during the summer for a couple of weeks. We do uh, October is uh, we've got a week where it's, you know, fire prevention week. And we'll visit all the schools and preschools and talk to them about a lot of things. So we look for every opportunity as we can, because we know that we're taxpayer funded and uh, we need, you know, we need the public buy-in and, to do what we do. And we, we count on, on our, they're our customers and they're, they're who we serve. So we try to make sure that we, we give as much back and educate as much as possible. Also goes to show that, you know, a lot of folks that are in the academic world say, oh, I hate writing, uh, proposals to get grants. It's everywhere. You end up writing proposals of some form. <laughs> yeah, it's so true when you want money. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, our local library runs a weekend, well, pre-COVID, ran a weekend called Touch a Truck. And they just like invite all like the biggest trucks that there are out. And it's so much fun when like the ladder trucks come through and stuff. And they'll have like certain times of the day where they'll like turn on all their sirens and everything. And that's always, um, it's really cool to see how excited the kids get. So I imagine that's like a really great part of your job, right? Getting to Oh yeah, we, we love those events. And I can't tell you how often, how much we we love riding in those big trucks and honking the <laughs> horns and doing the sirens just as much as any other kid might. Uh, it has not gotten old yet. Going as fast as you can down the street, honking a horn, blaring a siren. It, it's the best. Um, so I have a question because I'm not from there. Are your fire trucks red or are they a different color? Yes. That's the only, the only color fire truck should be. Absolutely. I, yeah. Uh-huh. I saw a light blue one and I'm like, what are you people doing? Oh. <laughs> I felt really bad for that company. <laughs> yeah. I was saying, and you say that very close to where the yellow truck trend started. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, mm-hmm. yellow yeah. trucks are a big deal. You know, the two, the two most common, there's a bunch of studies out there that say red and yellow are both two of the most uh, easily seen colors out there. And so that's kind of where that stuff derives from. Uh, yellows school buses are yellow. Okay. So every time we go and, and see, there, there's a, I won't mention them, a local municipality who uses, who has uh, yellow fire trucks. We just say, there goes the school bus. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's really great. Um, I, it, when you do these uh, community outreach things and, you know, John's brought this up in one of the questions, but it's, 
it seems it gets easier. Your job does with experience, right? The more things you see, the better you can handle a situation. But how do you get people to run through these scenarios? You know what I mean? I think that it's probably people don't want to think about bad stuff happening or do you get pushback where people are like, Oh, I don't even want to do that. Yeah. Do you mean from, from personality? I mean, uh, well, no, from the public mostly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, my, my wife will tell you the same thing. You know, she never wants to have to run through those things in her mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I don't like doing that either. You know, anytime that, that we, run calls where a child, a young child's involved and it's something um, tragic. It's, I mean, the first thing I think of, or, you know, I've got five kids, by the way, I haven't mentioned, I've got five children. And so it's, it's easy for me to, to find a kid of some age that, that uh, mirrors one of my children's age. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, those are all, they're, they're always really hard. Um, and it's hard to put yourself in that scenario, but it's better that you do that mentally than that happen in real life. Right. So you don't, you because if that happens, that is going to be the worst moment of your entire life. And the, the last thing you want to be is unprepared. You don't want to be standing there wishing that you had done something differently, um, wishing that you had done anything. And, and that happens too often. And, and like I said, I teach CPR uh, pretty regularly. One of the biggest statistics I bring up is the fact that um, only 30% of the time people perform CPR in a cardiac arrest. And, and we try to delve into why that is. And I think uh, a lack of public education is one. Uh, we've overcomplicated the, the, the education of CPR, uh, but, but we've, we've never set people up to, to have realistic training. So when that moment comes, they don't know what to do. They're, they panic. Um, and I always like to say, hey, they're already dead, right? They're not going to get more dead. So everything we do from here is more po- is positive. Uh, we're just working, we're working towards a better goal here. So um, we have to prepare our minds. We have to be ready for those things uh, as uncomfortable as it might be. Then the more we do it, the more comfortable we're going to be, uh, which is good because if that situation happens, you want to be, it sounds weird, but you want to be as comfortable as you possibly can be. So your mind is calm. You have the dexterity that's necessary. You have the cognitive thinking that's necessary. That was really interesting earlier. You talked about you fall down and fall back to you, you know, your lowest level training or whatever, because I, so many people, that's unbelievable to me. 30% is all yeah. that, that CPR. Cause it's like, I've been through several CPR classes of varying, you know, degrees of usefulness really, um, unfortunately, but yeah, I could see if you've never even done that and you just stand there, that's, that's, um, that's too bad. Right, I feel like, sorry. Yeah. How, oh, no, how many what times do you, do? Do you you hear, you know, well, I don't want to be sued or you hear, yeah. uh, I don't know, do, do we give breaths or do we not give breaths? Is it 30 compressions to two breaths? Is it 15 to two, 30 to one? You mm-hmm. know, what is it? Do we check for a pulse first? Do we not check for, a, you know, so, so some of that is, um, you know, people who have been through multiple CPR classes have, as things have changed, as science has shown us more data we've been able to pull out and say, okay, it's, you know, we were doing this before. Now we do this. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of that in high speed with, with this COVID stuff where at the very beginning we saw, Hey, this is what, you, what we recommend this, this, and this. And then it kind of changes and go, well, actually we think it's this now because science, you know, the more we discover, the more we really have to alter our methods. So it's the same thing with CPR. Um, but really, the, the thing I try to drive home is that, you know, too many classes, people sit in a classroom, you watch a video of, of bad acting, uh, you either fall asleep or you laugh at the acting, mm-hmm. and then you push on a foam dummy. 
for just a few minutes and, and then you don't go back in that classroom for two more years. Yep. How likely are you going to be, you know, prepared in, in the event that something real happens? And so my, my goal is always to try to make that training a little bit more realistic. I do more of a lecture style and kind of cut out a lot of the videos if, if I can. Um, and I try to show as much charts and data as possible to try to really draw in. Because for me, if people understand why you're supposed to do something, they're going to be a lot more um, driven to, to actually do it or, or care about it. I think that's a great point. And we talk a lot about education on here. You know, that's what I do. Um, and that's a really good point because I've had bad CPR classes, which the things I remember are the guy showed us pictures of like some dude in a chainsaw accident and stuff like that. that were just on his phone. And he said like his back hurt too bad to get on the floor to do the dummies. So, but then the good CPR classes, you know, they made it a game of like trying to figure out how to take your gloves off without getting blood on you, you know, and stuff like that in the American Red Cross classes. And those are the things you remember, like it was fun, but it was less of those cheesy videos and more of the hands-on stuff. And it's like everyone right. learns better that way. That's, that's really good to hear that that's getting like, you know, more of that and less of the videos as entertaining sure. as they are. <laughs> <laughs> The only yeah. video I show in my CPR classes are the, uh, the one from the office. The oh. CPR video. <laughs> That's awesome. Ah, yes. The, uh, the Dwight, Dwight CPR class yes. is very great. And it's not just in, in CPR, but really a lot of the safety and preparedness videos. Uh, if you go on YouTube and look for forklift training videos, they're just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, as, as you know, I, I teach OSHA classes uh, uh, for my, my moonlighting, my, my second job. Uh, and I'm right there with you, man. It's, it's, it's horrendous. I will say there was one. So one video that was super useful was uh, we toured um, a, an open pit mine and we had to watch the safety video. And so we're all just sitting there, you know, watching the safety video. And one of those huge trucks backs up over like a full size pickup truck. <laughs> Like it was nothing. <laughs> and we're all like, oh, can you rewind that? <laughs> that was a cool safety video. <laughs> well, and so, you know, we've, we've talked a couple times now about vehicles and Shane, you just talked about one getting backed over. Oh, amazing. Uh, that's uh, that's really, if you're not at home, we spend a lot, a lot of us spend a lot of time in our cars every day and cars are not an incredibly safe form of transport. Uh, I would say, because you're at the mercy of all the other people that are out there as well. And what are some things that you should have in mind when you're in your vehicle and might be, might find yourself in an emergency situation? Oh, that's a really great point. Um, I always keep a first aid kit in my, in my truck and it's a little bit more than just a couple of band-aids, you know, um, because realistically, a lot of the things that you may get involved in, uh, with a car wreck, band-aids aren't going to be your fix, you know. Um, one thing I carry in my truck all the time is, is, a, is a manufactured tourniquet. Um, some that I recommend would be uh, the SAM tourniquet. Um, that's a big one. It's, it's about $35, $40, I think, on Amazon. Those are really great. They're meant to, to apply to yourself or you can apply to others. Uh, I wash some, some 4 by 4 or 2 by 2 gauze pads and, and some, some roll um, something like some tape or some gauze rolls or something like that. Those are all good things to keep in the event that you're injured or somebody you're near gets injured. Um, 
as far as, as roadway safety goes, it's, 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 it goes back to that high school defensive driving class. You know, you've, you've always got to be on the lookout for other people. Most people don't see that, you know, they don't wake up in the morning going, Hey, I'm going to go get in a car wreck today. Right. So you always have to be on the lookout for, for what others are doing on the road, try to be distraction free as much as possible. Uh, the good thing is, is cars are being made safer to some degree, right? They're meant to absorb a lot of impact. Unfortunately, that means you get in, in any little fender bender. Most of the time your car is, is rendered totaled, but they're much, much safer now. Um, I'm a big advocate of seatbelts. I've seen uh, too many fatality wrecks and accidents that, that seatbelts weren't, weren't involved in. Uh, most of those were all ejections. So seatbelts seat belts definitely do save lives. It's so hard to believe that our people today don't wear seatbelts. Right. That's, that's so shocking to me. But I guess, you know, I grew up also not having to wear seatbelts all the time. That's that's my best firefighter memories. My brother was a volunteer fireman. And I, I remember I was sitting in the front seat backwards, right? So my hands were hanging over into the back seat. And he kept telling me to sit down and I wouldn't. So he slammed on the brakes and I fell into the floor <laughs> and my butt got stuck in his fire department helmet. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> He literally had to like roll me out of the car and extricate it. And he's like, I told you to sit down and be safe. That's funny. So yeah. <laughs> so what about, uh, you know, if your car, if, if you find yourself suddenly in water, we've had a, an incident here a number of years ago where a barge uh, took out a section of a bridge and it was an arched bridge and cars just kept going uh, into the water. Mm-hmm. I know some people have talked about, well, you know, they carry a, one of those glass hammers or a seatbelt cutter with them. Are those things that you think are useful or are they things that most people don't get the the training to actually render them that useful in an emergency like that? Yeah, it becomes such a complex scenario um, because if you're being swept off the road, that water's already going really, really fast. Um, so there's, there's not a whole lot of positions you're going to be in that are, uh, <laughs> that are ideal, right? Um, the good thing, the best thing you could probably do would be if the car comes to a stop, so it's carried and, and then uh, somehow wedged or stopped, if you could get out and get on top of the car, the window punch might be okay. Um, but like we, we continue to talk about, oftentimes people will have tools that won't, they won't get to use because they're not prepared for that moment and they'll forget about it. Um, gosh, that's, that's, such a, that's such a tough position to be in. You know, uh, the other good thing to, to know is that um, in this, you know, I would, I would suggest people take as much um, awareness level classes as possible for, for things like swift water, but um, your car, if it's, if it gets lodged in the water becomes what's called an eddy. So everything, all the water goes around it. And then immediately behind where that car is, is still water. So if you're able to get outside of your car either sitting on the top of your vehicle if it's not going to move or finding yourself in that eddy behind, a, uh, behind the vehicle or behind a large object. If you can find a way to just stay there, uh, that's going to be your safest moment. Beyond that, it's, it's trying to direct your body towards the closest shore. Um, it's like I said, there's, there's not really an ideal scenario. And, and that's one of those things where we can, gosh, we can go through five or six different things that could happen and how you could respond. Um, I, I'm cautious to give too much because right. I don't, I don't want to misinform or, or put people in the wrong position. Yeah, definitely. There's, there, there's a lot going on. And uh, that one of the reasons that I ask about that is because 
I've seen a lot of folks buy those little window punch hammers. And, and if you never go to a junkyard and try it, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to successfully execute most likely. Right. You know, there's some really funny videos uh, on YouTube of people trying to break car windows with hammers and their fists and uh, <laughs> how it bounces back is, is really quite comical. <laughs> We used to pay for that. Like they'd always have a junk car in high school and you could pay like 10 bucks to wail on it. And that was always really funny to watch people take a baseball bat and then not successfully yeah. uh, oh, yeah. smash the yeah. window. And you're like, that's what you get. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a question for how much, so we talk about floods a lot, right? And obviously that's a huge deal in terms of emergencies and rescues. How much do you guys interact with the local weather service? Or like how much weather information do you guys take in? Obviously we're big weather nerds and we take in a lot, but sure. <laughs> sure. sure. <laughs> um, you know, we have a, um, we run the, the city's weather operations center out of the fire department. Uh, it used to be run out of the police department, but we kind of took it over. A um, lot of, a lot of uh, local political drama that John's familiar with, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's with the fire department now. So we've got some folks that have been through some, so maybe awareness level courses on uh, on how to read some weather patterns. I'm not one of those guys. I, I, I don't have the quite the same brain power that you two have. Um, and I, I just can't find myself uh, uh, drawn in really strongly to, to some of that. So we do have some <laughs> folks that are that are that spend their time, uh, especially, you know, I think over the course of these next few days, we're going to get some good rains in and um a lot of folks that are watching that really closely with, with the fire department. So they keep us, uh, and those are, those are a lot of those folks are on the, um, kind of the chief level. So, so they spend a lot of the, you know, they're, they're kind of the office staff. So they do a good job of, of keeping us informed at the operations level and, and letting us know what to be on the lookout for and those types of things. That was the nicest way that I've ever been called a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> so gentle <laughs> you know when, when you start to get in supervisory roles you, you have to to find a way to use words <laughs> i love it <laughs> that's why they pay you the bigger bucks right the, big, uh, the bigger little bucks <laughs> some dollars yes exactly <laughs> oh man do it again insult insult john now <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, after we moved in and, 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 uh, and Jeff, so Jeff used to be my neighbor, uh, and we, we ran him clean out of the neighborhood in just a few short Obviously. months. Yeah. So. <laughs> he was like, Oh my Lord, <laughs> get out of here, kids. That guy's a bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, one last question that we had was if somebody is listening to this and they say, this sounds like exactly what I want to do with my life. I want to, I want to help people. I want to be prepared for these emergency situations, uh, communicate and form and, and serve my community. Uh, how can they get started on a career path like this? What can they do? Maybe even from the high school time. Um, well, one of the best things that you can do if you're starting, if you're young, um, my recommendation um, is, uh, is going to be to find something else, <laughs> um, get some life experience. No, and that's not, that's not me saying don't get into the fire service. That's saying get some life experience under your belt first, because so much of what we do um, has to draw on other experiences. Because as you guys have, have, have touched on bef- previously, it's that 
there's no two emergencies that are same, the same, right? And so, especially, you know, we'll get called for uh, odor emergencies. And then I have to check out an HVAC system and figure out, okay, where's the smoke coming from? Or where's, where's this heat source coming from? Um, and so there's guys on my crew that, that were HVAC specialists. There's guys on my crew that, that, that were welders before. Um, and so we draw on kind of all these different trades that, and that's what makes us really, really good at our job and, and mitigating emergencies. So my advice is, is if you're real young, um, find it, find an interest that, um, will sustain you in, in, in the long term. So I would gear, um, just like I'll gear my children towards the trades, towards, um, a career as an electrician, a plumber, uh, HVAC, any of those things. And then once you've gotten yourself established, you've gotten some, some life experience, number one, that sets you up for a side business. You know, we have a great schedule where, you know, for me, I work 48 hours on and I'm off for 96. So two days on, four days off. So I've got a second job in those, in those four days off. It's not always required for some guys, especially if you've got a household that's got two incomes, but, uh, that'd be a good, easy, passive income to own your own business. And, and you'd really set yourself up for the future. But beyond that, it would be to, to start gearing yourself towards um, some medical classes. Not all fire departments require, but most fire departments require, even if they don't run ambulances, they still require a, a entry-level EMT certification. So I would encourage you to start looking towards your local uh, community colleges, uh, try, to, try to get in, into the, the, their EMS program, get an EMT license, uh, but if you got some sort of idea of where you're interested in serving, uh, just go to that fire department website, see what their qualifications are, uh, what they require, what sort of entry level testing they have. You know, we have a little physical agilities test and then a, a written test. And, and that's pretty similar. That's pretty standard across the, the nation. Um, so I'd kind of look into that. Uh, talk to anybody that you know that uh, might already be in the fire service. And then, of course, you can reach out to me. Uh, my Twitter handle is at lifealertme. So feel free to, uh, to DM me or anything like that. And I'd be happy to give some more answers. Well, that's uh, awesome. And I, I will say every time I stop by the, the station when you're on duty, it's a lot of fun because I always learn something from you and all the guys on your crew. Cause I see you have such a wide background of experiences. Absolutely. You seriously show up and ask to go down the pole, John. I can't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let him do that, Jeff. <laughs> oh, John's here again. Grease the pole. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I'll be a little more careful next time I, I come down. Yeah, would you? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, with that, I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show and something that none of us are going to know anything about <laughs> on paper Friday. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this paper was sent in by listener Daryl. I will say the title uh, mostly sums up what I understand about it. <laughs> Caffeine improves the performance of thermal stability of perovskite solar cells by Wang and 90 other people. <laughs> um yeah i don't go ahead john (laughs) so (laughs) i did a little bit of research out of this uh paper directly because i know that solar cells right aren't necessarily very efficient and Mm -hmm. so well okay we're going to do something to improve that it sounds like but perovskite solar cells are apparently a relatively new technology that they think could be very efficient except they have this nasty habit of when you expose them to any reasonably high temperature, like say 
I don't know, 80 Celsius. Uh, they only last about 150 hours before they stop working. This is not what you want in a solar cell. <laughs> <laughs> that was the crampiest. Uh... <laughs> I just think of 91 people working on a research paper. And if it's anything like the, the, the research projects I had to do in high school or college, then you know it's only one or two people. Uh, how would you like to be the 89 or 90 other people just getting your name tagged on that thing? <laughs> so like we have this rule of thumb it's always like the last person because that's the undergrad that probably did all of the work <laughs> like so you look at the first name and you look at the last name <laughs> absolutely and, and so in this case uh the last author is actually the person that runs the lab which See? apparently is pretty common in biology uh to do that but yeah so they uh i found a pop science type paper our, our article about this. And they said during a lab meeting, they were trying to figure out how to get these things to be more efficient because they were single digit efficiencies. And somebody said, I don't know, caffeine works for me. <laughs> and this is where it comes from. It's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. <clears throat> so they, uh, they put caffeine on these solar cells and yeah, lo and behold, instead of working for 150 hours they worked for over 1300 and their efficiency went up into the 20 percent range that's a huge gain i mean i feel like that's what my efficiency does with caffeine so it makes total sense <laughs> that's uh just imagine if they gave those cells amphetamines or something yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's the next paper they're waiting to publish <laughs> Um, yes, only in academia can you uh, submit a requisition for amphetamine and have it approved. <laughs> it's for the solar cells, man. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> um, yeah, this is really weird. There's a lot of chemistry in this that I obviously glossed over. So <laughs> chemistry is not my favorite thing. <laughs> uh, nor mine. And it did have some moments that reminisced of when I took a surface characterization class, all these techniques that they use to scan the surface of, Ugh. of these solar cells and map out like, here's where the gold is and here's where the lead is. And here's where all these other elements are uh, enough to know that this was a lot of work, but not enough to understand it. Yes, correct. <laughs> Anytime you get a, a TEM, I am. Uh, yeah. Those that microscopy just blows my mind. So yeah, pretty pictures, but, um, but it's also, it's very interesting. Yeah. And I think if they, uh, the, the idea is to keep working on this and eventually get a commercial perovskite solar cell, uh, that'd be great because renewable energy is always great. Uh, mm -hmm. but these cells also, uh, they're out in the sun, they get a lot of heat because of that. And if that heat destroys your solar cell in, you know, under a working month, yeah, that's not really very good. Um, it is good to also expand our things that we can use. So, you know, we don't want to mine the crap out of everything. But if we can mine something else like perovskite, it's pretty common. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, pretty common. It's not super common, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Well, so there you go. Caffeine doesn't only improve our performance, um, but if you go out and pour a can of Coke on your solar cell, maybe something interesting will happen. Uh, uh, ants. <laughs> ants is what will happen. Ants is what will happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so uh, 
Thanks, Daryl, for sending that paper in. And Jeff, thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So if you have collected your own data on how caffeine affects the output of your home solar system, we'd, of course, love to see that. Shannon, how can folks send that into us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We are at don'tpanicgeo on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Um, we're in the Slack chat room, the Don't Panic channel, the Software Underground. And as always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though fire departments, when they hear a call to our houses, decide that eh, we'll just finish dinner first <laughs> until next week. Remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 